I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 16, verse 7 through 17, verse 14. And we're going to be talking about God's testimony to Hagar and Abram. Now, how many, you guys are all familiar with the story of Hagar. You guys have studied the book of Genesis before. How many of you believe that Hagar came to know God and to have faith on him? You do? All right. Well, we're going to find out whether she did or not this morning, all right? Because in our lesson last week, we saw that Abram and Sarah failed to be patient and wait on God's perfect timing to accomplish his will in providing a son for Abram. Now, the price of that failure was that Hagar was abused, and as a result, she rejected their witness and fled, right? And you'll recall that Hagar was first given to Abram by Sarah, and then she was rejected and persecuted by Sarah after she became pregnant, right? Now, Hagar's rejection led her to flee from the very God that could give her everlasting life. Hagar had absolutely no desire to be like Abram and Sarah if the way they treated her was an example of the God that they believed in. So she turned her face back towards Egypt and back towards the world, back towards death and eternal darkness. So now my question comes again, did Hagar come to know the Lord? And, and so I'm glad that the Holy Spirit of God is able to convict the heart of the lost person in spite of the witness that most of us believers display on a daily basis, especially when we're away from the church, and even worse when we're within our own home. Now, do you guys act differently on Sunday morning than you do during the rest of the week? Ooh, my, 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 my. Now, I'm stepping on toes here this morning, aren't I? Yeah. So, since Abram and Sarah had so badly represented God to Hagar, God now steps in himself and shows himself to Hagar. And so we start with God's testimony to Hagar, and it begins with the coming of the omnipresent one. We're in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, verses 7 and 8. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, which camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. Now, notice that phrase, the angel of the Lord. Now, did you know this is the first time in the Bible that a reference is made to the angel of the Lord? And I believe that in the Old Testament Scripture, this angel is distinguished from all of the other angels. And I believe that because first he is named the angel of the Lord, Jehovah. So it, the word uh, Lord here is the Hebrew word Jehovah that is being there. I am the angel of the Jehovah. And in Genesis 21, 17, he is named the angel of God. It says, and God heard the voice of the lad, 
And the angel of God called Hagar out of the heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. And then in Isaiah 63, 9, we see he is named the angel of God's presence. It says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and he carried them all the days of old. And so this is the first way the angel of the Lord is distinguished, and it is by his name. Now the second way he is distinguished is that he is clearly identified with the Lord himself in his self-manifestation to men. Unto Jacob the angel said, I am the God of Bethel. Genesis 31, 11 through 13 says, And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream. And this is Jacob, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes, and see, all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring-straked, speckled, and grizzled. For I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowest a vow unto me, now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Oh, look here what God's telling us there about this one. So we see that the angel of the Lord said unto Moses also, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we see this in Exodus 3, 2 through 6. And the angel of the Lord, here we go again, appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither. Boy, y'all try to say that three times fast, right? Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thy standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, look at this, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look upon God. Now, that's the uh, first two ways that he is distinguished. The third way the angel is distinguished is that divine attributes are assigned to this angel. We see in verse 10 of our study that he will make promises of fruitfulness to Hagar. He'll say, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, and thou it shall not be numbered for multitude. So he's making promises. And Hagar will describe him as the all-seeing God. Now, Jacob referred to him as an angel who redeemed me from all evil in Genesis 48, 16. Now, the place where this angel appeared to Moses through the burning bush was holy ground, and he was to be worshipped in Exodus 3, 5, and 6. Now, the worship is strictly forbidden of any other angel, and we see that in Revelations 22, 8 through 9. So he was to be worshipped. Oh, my, 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 that tells us something. So we also see that the angel of the Lord was the keeper of Israel, and his voice had to be obeyed, for the name of God was in him, and we see that in Exodus 23, 20 through 23. 
Now, the New Testament reveals to us that this Old Testament angel may be identified with the pre-incarnate Son of God. The angel referred to his own name as secret and literally translated as wonderful. In Judges 13, 18, it says, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? And Isaiah gives the name wonderful to the predicted Messiah of Israel. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And then, lastly, we'll see that Malachi affirmed that the Lord, who would suddenly come to his temple, would also be the messenger or angel of the covenant. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So the identification of this angel with our Lord is in harmony with his distinctive function in the relation to the Godhead. For he is the eternal word through whom the invisible God speaks and manifests himself. And we see that in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John 1, 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So with all that, I believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. He is the angel of the presence. He is Jehovah himself, the Messiah. Now I go through all of this because it's important for us to understand that it is Jesus himself that is approaching Hagar in our verses. God loved Hagar and he sent his son to talk to her. So as we go back to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, we see that the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. Now, little did Hagar know, but God, in his infinite grace, was following closely behind her as she fled from her mistress, Sarah. Now, we've talked about other pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, such as through Melchizedek. But it is interesting to note that the first appearance of the Jehovah angel should not be to Abraham, but to Hagar. Not the heir of all the promises, but to an Egyptian fugitive. Not to a man, but to a woman. Not to a saint, but to a sinner. Not to a person of high rank, but to a slave. Not to one seeking God, but one fleeing towards Egypt away from God. I don't know why God chose to appear to Hagar, but certainly it was a revelation of the grace of God. He loved Hagar just as much as he loved Abram. He sought her and he found her just as God had searched and found Abram in the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. Now, the angel of God said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, which camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? Now notice that the Lord called her by name and then used the term Sarah's maid, not Abram's wife. Because remember, Sarah gave her to Abram to be his wife, right? God is not acknowledging the relationship between Abram and Hagar. 
yet he is offering her his grace. Now, but first, she needs to understand her lost condition. He asked, Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? Now, Hagar replies by saying, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And her confession just flows out of her when she says, I flee. Now, next we see the command of the omnipresent one. We saw the coming of the omnipresent one, and now here we see the command. Verse 9 of chapter 16 says, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. Now, I want to tell you, this is exactly why people do not wish to get saved. Hagar was saved by putting her faith in the second person of the Godhead who revealed himself to her, or as we would say today, she trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, nothing could be easier or simpler than that, right? But the immediate consequence of that response to the Lord was to be a conversion, a turning around, a going back, a making of herself humble before Sarah, a willing obedience to God. Now think about that. Nothing could be harder, perhaps, than that. She had just fled. The simple part was trusting Jesus. The hard part was responding to that, right? It was not enough for Hagar to believe in the Lord standing there before her. She needed to act. She needed to truly repent of her sins. She needed to obey God's commands. Now, the definition of the word repent is to stop going the way you are headed, to stop heading towards the world and sin, and to turn around and go the opposite direction towards God. Now, for Hagar, this meant she had to stop heading towards Egypt and return to Sarah. Hagar is given the choice of the wide gate of Egypt or the narrow gate of the highway of faith. Now, millions of people are deluded by the claims of only believe. That's all you got to do is just believe. Well, Satan believes in God, but that's not enough for salvation to come to Satan or you. It is true that salvation is all of grace that it is made ours on the principle of faith, and that it is not of works, lest any man should boast. But at the same time, faith in Christ involves surrendering our will to His. Now, the first words out of an enlightened and converted Saul of Tarsus were, Lord, what shall thou have me do? So true conversion involves repentance, rebirth, and restoration. For Hagar, it meant believing God's words, and then as evidence of her faith, acting on them. It meant being obedient to God and going back to Sarah. Now next, we not only see the coming of the omnipresent one, but we also see the comfort of the omniscient one. Genesis 16, verses 10 through 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seeds exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now notice that when we are obedient to God's will in our lives, God never expects us to go through the trials placed before us alone. Nor did he expect Hagar to go through them alone. Now to help Hagar have evidence of a true conversion, God gave her a promise. 
He told her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. So the promise was that she would be fruitful. He said, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And then God tells her the name of her child, and it shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now the name Ishmael means God shall hear. And Hagar's life would not be in vain, nor would she have to struggle through the hard years ahead in her own strength. God would be looking after her and listening to her because the Lord had heard thy affliction. Now, God also gave her a prophecy and it centered on Ishmael. Genesis 16, verse 12 says, And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. So it is now Ishmael that the Arab tribes have descended. They have fulfilled that prophecy on the world stage even unto this day. So next, we see Hagar's response. And Hagar responded in two ways. First, she gave verbal expression to her faith. Verses 13 and 14. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Ber Laha Roy, behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now, notice the phrase, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. Now we know that the Egyptians had a conception of God, although it may have been a very primitive idea. Hagar's response is that she calls out to God. She declares that she is seen of God. That is something really new to her that she did not ever realize before about God. God tells us that wherefore the well was called Berlaha Roy, and that literally means the well of him that liveth and seeth me. Now it was at this place where I believe Hagar passed from death unto life. And from this point forward, the true and living God would no longer just be the one about whom Abram and Sarah spoke. He would be her God as well. She confessed her faith with her mouth. Now finally, Hagar gave vital expression to her faith in verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old, that's important, just notice it's 86 years old, right? When Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So we see that Hagar returned to Abram's camp and submitted herself to Sarah. And she believed God's words and she acted on them. She had faith with what? Legs on it. She went back to Sarah. And as a result, God tells us, and Hagar bare Abram a son, which was the son promised to Hagar by God. And it was God's testimony to Hagar. That's important too. It was God's promise to Hagar. Now next, we see the testimony of God Abram. So this was God's testimony to Hagar. She's come back and she's had a son. And now we see the testimony of God to Abram. So last week, we said that chapter 16 was one of those chapters where you just said about Abram, ah, come on, Abram, don't do something as stupid as that. You know, he, he, just, he just was doing all kinds of things that just didn't make any sense whatsoever. After all the things that God had given him right before that happened, 
And he went out and did this whole episode with Hagar, right? Well, many people feel that the 17th chapter is the most outstanding chapter in the book of Genesis. And in one sense, this chapter is the key to the book of Genesis. And it may be a key to the entire Bible. That's just how important this chapter is. So we'll see in this chapter that God makes a covenant with Abram and confirms his promise to him about a son. And he lets Abram know that Ishmael is not the one that he promised to him. This chapter makes it very clear that Ishmael was not the son God promised Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham concerns two important items, a seed and a lamb. We'll also see that God reveals himself to Abram by a new name, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Now God also gives Abram a new name in this chapter. And up to this point, his name was Abram. And God changes it to Abraham. Thank heaven. I don't have to keep trying to say Abram instead of Abraham uh, once we go from here, right? Yeah, so it, I have to really concentrate on that. Uh, all right, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, so notice that age, from 86 to 90 and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So 13 years later here, God tells Abram that I am the Almighty God. That's 13 years from the time Ishmael was born until God reappears to him, right? God tells Abram that I am the Almighty God. Now, this is the first time that this name is used for God in the Scriptures. It is translated from the Hebrew words El Shaddai, and it means the Almighty God all-sufficient. It is the name of God used by the patriarchs prior to the giving of the law at Sinai, and its most frequent occurrence is in the book of Job, where El Shaddai occurs 31 times. And the name Jehovah largely replaces it from Exodus chapter 6 forward. So, El Shaddai is the name of God which defines him as the strengthener and the satisfier of his people. El Shaddai, he not only enriches, but he makes his people fruitful. There is, this is nowhere better illustrated than in our verses today, where God takes a 99-year-old man and makes him fruitful. El Shaddai chastens his people, and the hand of El Shaddai falls upon Job, the best man of his time, not in judgment, but in purifying unto greater fruitfulness. Now notice that there are actually three names used for God right here in verses 1 through 3 of this 17th chapter. First, we have the Lord Jehovah appeared unto Abraham in verse 1. So Jehovah, the Old Testament, is the Jesus of the New Testament. And the second name of God is in the phrase, I am the Almighty God, or El Shaddai in verse 1, the satisfier who pours himself into believers' lives to make them fruitful. Now, the third name of God is found in the phrase, and God, or Elohim, talked with him in verse 3. God, in the ultimate and absolute sense, is Elohim. Now, do you see anything familiar here? In those three names, we see the threefold nature of God. We have the Son in the name of Jehovah, the Spirit of the, in the name of El Shaddai, and the Father in the name of Elohim. 
It is by the use of these three names that we can gather this God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, and they would be joined together in conveying this covenant unto Abraham. So all three parts of God were conveying this covenant to Abraham. Verses 2 through 3 says, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, And then notice the words, And Abram fell on his face. And he stayed there throughout this entire revelation. And he received a promise in a state of absolute subjection. Nothing was required of him. All was of grace. He simply had to listen. For the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional and in no way depended on the cooperation of Abram or his seed. Now we're building here because there's a lot of countries and, and Muslims who say that, that this was God's promise and Hagar's promise and, and, and so forth uh, because the Israelites failed and that uh, verified promise. Yeah, we're proving here that it is unconditional on whatever Israel did. Now God tells Abram, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. So this is God's fifth appearance unto Abram. And he comes now not only to make the covenant, but also to reaffirm the promise of a son that he has made. Now notice, because of the timing of this, the 13 years between, and now God is coming to Abram now, after Ishmael has been born, this absolutely rules out the son Ishmael as being the promised child. Now Paul, in writing in the fourth chapter of Romans, says this in Romans 4.19, And being not weak in faith, he, being Abraham, considered not his own body now dead, and when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Sarah's womb was actually a tomb at this time. It was a place of death. And out of death came life. Isaac was born. And Paul concludes that fourth chapter by saying this about the Lord Jesus. Romans 4.25 says, For who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So here we have life out of death. And that is the promise that God is now making to Abram. Abram is 99 years old, and that means that Sarah is 89 years old. And when Isaac was born, Abram was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90. So we have life from a womb that was dead. So next we see that there is a principle involved in God's covenant. So I want you to count up the use of the words, I will or ye shall in the entire chapter of verse 17. Don't do it right now. I'll tell you how many there are. But you see the use of the words, I, we, and ye shall in chapter 17, including the imperative must that we see in verse 13. God says, I will make thee fruitful. And I will make nations of thee, kings shall come out of thee. And we see here that at least 24 such statements are in this one chapter. Now the principle that God is giving to Abram is that God's covenant with him is an absolute, unconditional, binding, irrevocable agreement in which all the initiative, all the intent, and all the insistence are God's. No failure on Abram's part, no flaws, no forgetfulness of the part on his posterity, meaning his descendants, can annul this decree. God has pledged himself to see that every single line, every jot and tittle 
will be fulfilled. All of the factors and force that might be harnessed to hinder or halt the decree would be swept aside at last. As God is God, so the covenant must stand. Amen? And then we see that not only is there a principle involved with the covenant, there is also a people involved in the covenant. Verse 4, chapter 17 says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. So just like any other contract, God's covenant is careful to define exactly who it is that's going to benefit from its clauses. The person is Abraham, and the people are his seed. And verse 5 says, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For the father of many nations have I made thee. So God changes Abram's name Abraham. And what he did is he added the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet to Abram's name. And the number five in the scripture is associated with grace. Now the name Abram means high father or father of the height or even exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. So as Abram, he was a man who was a father before he even had any children. As Abraham, he was the father of a multitude by faith at that time. But 4,000 years later, from our perspective of looking back, we can say that God certainly made this prophecy come true. Now next we see that a period is involved in God's covenant. Not only a principle and a people, but a period is involved in God's covenant. Verses 6 and 7 says, And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. So notice the period of this covenant. God tells Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for what? An everlasting covenant. So God's covenant with Abram is an everlasting covenant, just as his covenant with you as a believer is everlasting. God promised the land to Abraham and his seed forever, and God promised everlasting life to believers in a covenant that cannot be broken for those that accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then lastly, there was a place involved in God's covenant. Verse 8 says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the land of Israel does not belong to the Arabs. It is not the Arab land. All For all of their bluster and show and trying to make people believe it does, it was not deeded to Ishmael. It was deeded to Isaac. And God tells Abram that he is giving him all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So we see that the substance of the promise emerged here and God pledged himself to give a special territorial holding to the Jewish people and to be their God. And then we come to the seal of the promise. Verses 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore thou, and thy seed after thee in their generation. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. 
and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Now, don't get confused here. God tells Abraham, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So circumcision is the badge of the covenant. Notice that the Israelites did not circumcise themselves in order to become members of the covenant. They did this because they had the covenant from God. Circumcision occupies the same place that good works occupy for the believer today. You do not perform good works in order to be saved. You perform good works because you have been saved. Now the badge of the covenant was circumcision, and it is the evidence of it. Verses 12 and 13 says, And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house, uh, bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now notice, they did not have to do this in order to get the covenant. God already made the covenant with them. The same thing is true today. Many people think that if they join the church or are baptized, that's going to make them saved. That's not true. You don't do those things to get saved. It is, if you are saved, you are commanded in the Scriptures to do both of those things, to go to church and to be baptized but you don't do them to get saved. Verse 14 says, And the uncircumcised man, child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So the fact that there were those who disobeyed, in fact, practically the entire nation of Israel disobeyed when they came out of the land of Egypt, did not nullify the covenant whatsoever. That disobedience simply meant that the individual would be put out. However, as far as a nation is concerned, no individual or group could destroy this covenant which God had made with Abraham and his seed after him. It is an everlasting covenant. The man who had broken the covenant was simply put out. The covenant stood. That is how marvelous it is. So we see in our scripture today that God testified to Hagar, and he testified to Abraham. He called Hagar back from certain everlasting death, and he gave an everlasting covenant to Abraham. See how important this chapter is? Amen. Amen. 